0: If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 15 through 25 as we continue this new series on the household. Now, last week we did a deep dive into the concept, but we never really did flesh out fully what we're talking about when we're talking about the household. And what you'll find through this series is that we're building up a view of the household from Scripture. We're kind of circling around the idea to help us understand more and more as we look at the Bible what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about the household it's not actually something that could be defined in one sentence if it was I would have already given you the definition of the household but the Bible implicitly uh, assumes that you that you know what the household is talking about because it just talks about it so what we're doing is studying the scriptures kind of circling around all these places where it starts to talk about the household to build up a, a bigger view and realizing that it's a concept it's it's not just one word that has One definition. So each of these sermons will start to build upon each other to grow out our view of the household. Now, to give a little bit of review for those of you who haven't been here um, through this series, based upon what we've looked at so far, we've seen that a household is covenantal in nature. That is, it has an invisible structure that you you can't see, but it's still binding things together. The, The members of the household, for instance, are held together by something called the covenant. And you can't see it, but it is there. There's an order to reality uh, that, that the household has. Uh, that it's more fixed than we often think. right? The, the places that we are uh, uh, assuming in the household, it's more real than we can even see. And as we saw that this concept stretches, it stretches all the way back to uh, Genesis at the creation of mankind. That's why we're continuing in Genesis 2. We looked a little bit at Genesis 1 last week, and we saw that mankind itself was a type of household. Right? Adam and Eve being placed in the garden, you have kind of a, a community there. It was a household of sorts. And uh, with the creation of man, you have a unity of humanity that is diverse between the sexes. And, and in a way, it reflects God's image. It is We are created in the image of God. So God, as a diversity of uh, persons... Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are together God. And man reflects that as mankind, one, being made in his image is male and female, right? They make up one together. So man images God as male and female. And part of that imaging is reflecting the dominion of God, because God has all dominion. He's given this, uh, given mankind dominion to reflect that in his image. So with a little etymology, that, that is the study of words, we saw that even the word dominion shares the same roots as the household. Even that word is connected to dominion. So when we think of households, we should be thinking of dominion. Thus, the household is something of a, a small-scale economic pattern for human flourishing. If you if you want to get down to a definition, I'm not going to hold to that being the, the, the full picture, but that's something to kind of uh, start with there, that it's a small-scale economic pattern for human flourishing. This is how humans should live in the world, through the, the order of the household, and not only for the family, but for society at large. We looked at that a little bit also. We then looked at how the well-ordered household is the prerequisite to many realms of power, including the church. Right? You can't even hold office in the church if you can't manage your household well. This is the qualification for deacons and elders. And finally, we did a cultural analysis of how our present society has shifted its value um, of the home completely out of the center of reference. When our culture thinks uh, of what it is, it's not thinking of the home. Right, But as I said last week, these invisible ties, they can't be cut. Even though we're trying to cut at them, you can't cut at them, at them because responsibility is inescapable in God's order. doesn't matter if we like it or not. Responsibility can't be walked away from. So regardless of our shift in values as a culture, the fact remains that the household is the foundation of society. It is the bedrock. So if someone says, well, Mason, look, our culture is still standing Right? If you look around, we still have the United States of America, and the household is not the center of it. What do you have to say about that? Well, what I would say is that a house will stand for quite a while with a cracked and eroded foundation. Right. You can still have a house that has the foundation crumbling, but it won't last for long, will it? Right. And that's right where I believe that we are presently in our culture. We are standing on a foundation that is eroded and cracked and in need of Repair. Marriage, for instance, it's still standing, but barely, right? We've started to redefine it. I still see lots of true marriages out here, but there are some places where you would look and you will see they are acting as if they are in marriage, but they are not in marriage, okay? Parents, for instance, they're still in charge of their kids mostly, but that's being uh, challenged even now, right? Parents are said to maybe not be in charge of their kids when they're in certain contexts like uh, school, okay? So that kind of thing, right? People uh, still use the strength of their household to shape culture, but scarcely, right? There's very few households who are actually using the power of their household to be a shaper of their culture, that's something very rare that used to be the norm okay so our foundations are cracked and eroded and in need of repair now one of the problems with seeking such a well-ordered society is that as we begin to scrutinize the greater culture we quickly realize that many of the problems were if not caused by us they were allowed by us okay We've allowed this to happen. In other words, the problem with pulling out the magnifying glass and starting to analyze the culture really, really close as we get up there, we start to see ourselves right in the middle of it. You can't be removed from your cultural uh, setting, your context. You will find yourself in the middle of it all. So disordered societies are actually caused by disordered households, okay? And disordered households are caused by disordered souls. It all starts... Right here, we've all heard that famous Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote, The line separating good and evil passed not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. That's where it starts. It doesn't start on a large scale. It actually starts right here in your own heart. So that's where I'd like to go next in this series. Uh, We've started uh, to think about the household, but now before we go any further, we, we need to realize that the individual soul is where we must start at to see the greater shape of the household. If your soul is right... That's how you're going to start to see a right household. We will eventually get to things like womanhood, manhood, marriage, uh, parenting, and the like. But for today, we need, we need to realize that the household will only be as organized as the souls it houses. Okay? That's what determines how well organized your house is, your household. So let's go back to Genesis, the, the, the very beginning, to get the only pre-fall picture we actually get of a sinless household. Or we get to see where God created something and there isn't sin involved to kind of blur our picture of what a household might look like. So Genesis 2, we're going to look at verses 15 through 24. Church, these are the words of God. Let's give attention to them and honor to God's word this morning. Genesis two, fifteen through 24. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of the Lord, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, uh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman And brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we go back to your good creation, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see its goodness and beauty this morning, that we would catch a glimpse of your vision for humanity, of how we should live in community with one another, how we should live relating ourselves to one another and ultimately relating to you. So Lord, I pray that you would captivate our hearts today as we look to your word, that we might be able to order our households accordingly that we might be shaped after the image of your son, Jesus, in the end, and that we might have flourishing households that are giving glory to the Son, the one who has been given all glory and honor and dominion. And we pray these things in his name this morning. Amen. So I'd like to begin at a little bit different place than when I normally begin sermons, and that is I'd like to start by telling you a lie. I want to tell you a lie this morning, and I can't take credit for it, Uh, Our all-wise collective culture made it up. And here it is. The lie is that you are fundamentally an individual. At its basic root, that is what you are, is you are an individual. And the ideology that props up this understanding is called individualism. You've heard of this before. It's the culture that we swim in. Now, the particular lie is that you are not defined by anything other than your self-determination. You are whatever you want to be, whatever you feel. You decide who you are and therefore create your own tailored identity. You can say who you want to be, and that is who you're holding other people accountable to call you and uh, count you. Okay, But the fact of the matter is you are not self-existent. Right? You didn't make yourself. You are not self-defined. You came into this world, and when you entered this world, you did not arrive as an isolated individual out on some island, right? You arrived as a child, as a son or a daughter. You are created completely apart from your own will or determination. You didn't make yourself. You were made, okay? Similarly, you did not choose your gender, You were physically pre-gendered before you ever had a chance to choose your sex. What this means is two things. One, you were not born asexual, that is without sex. That's not something that was left up to you to determine. That was already determined for you. And two, you were not born apart from some kind of household, right? You were born into your parents' household or parent. You had parents is the point I'm trying to make. And this is summed up in saying that you were born as a son, which would be a male, or a daughter, a female. That's everyone in this room. Everyone in this room was born as a male or a female, as a son or a daughter. Before you were a mom, before you were a dad, before you were a wife, anything uh, that you might call uh, yourself, before that you were a son or a daughter and you will always be a son or a daughter because that is the way you came into this world and you cannot change that, okay? And finally, you were not born into a context of an amorphous home. Okay, Your home had a particular shape and goal that you had no part in creating when you came into it. You came into a culture that was already created. That is to say, your home life, uh, the context in which you grew up, it was not chosen by you. It was predetermined. That was already there when you came into this world. Now, here are three competing uh natural truths and i say natural because i don't even need the bible uh, uh to, to support these claims three natural truths to compete with the lie of individualism i've already kind of said them so far you aren't self-made that's obvious right you, ha- you came from something someone you can't choose your sex you came into the world with that already determined and you can't choose your context in which you are shaped right you're not born on an island you're born into a household Now, these three truths could be summed up by saying that. You are born into a household. You are part of a household. Every single person in this room, no one is excluded from this series. You can't say, well, I don't fit in as a mom because I don't have kids. No, you are a child and you have been put into a household. So everyone is included in this series, okay? No matter what role you might take on later in life. Now, these three truths could be summed up uh, by saying that you're a household, as I said, but you are not even simply a male or a female you were born as a son or a daughter okay so we can't even say well yeah i came as a son or, or, or i came as a male or female no you were came as a son or a daughter and that implies something more than you even realize you were born under the headship of your parents and they decided how you would be raised your your upbringing was left up to someone else not yourself you didn't raise yourself okay the point i'm making is that we are fundamentally relational and covenantal beings Not isolated individuals without a context. See, that's the difference. Our culture says, or is trying to say, that you are fundamentally an individual and all that is uh, irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. It's part of who you are. It's part of your makeup. And everyone fits into the household in some way, not just traditional families. That's why I wanted to start here. Okay? Now, let's talk about the goodness of the household for a moment. As we saw in Genesis, even the first two people created were made in a relational context of marriage, placed in a garden, we might say a household, without their permission and with predetermined instructions to work and keep. Right, the three things that we just talked about. That's the picture we see in Genesis. It's a prefabricated household that includes a goal of taking dominion, instructions to work and keep, engendered, created humans that are forbidden from doing things. There are don't do this uh, uh, clauses in the uh, household in the very beginning. Right, Commands not to do things. And it was good. Okay, It was good. Right? All, all those three things that I just said that our culture is saying that's bad, I'm telling you the Bible says those are actually good things, that, that, that we have a household. Okay, So that's the vision that I want you to start this understanding of the household with is that it is good. Okay, The, the, the picture that we need to craft in our mind is that this God-ordained order is an inescapable pattern. You can't get away from it, but it's good. Right? It's a good inescapable pattern for human flourishing. That's why God made it inescapable. He wanted it to always be to where we're coming back to the way he made it to be so that we might flourish. Okay, The creator of it all placed visible and visible boundaries that created an atmosphere for thriving. That's what he wanted for humanity. Okay, And if you think about the, the picture that we see in the garden here, Adam has just created. Um, he's been given a wife. To him and he's been given commands don't eat of the garden don't do this don't do that kind of thing Uh, take dominion and he's been given all this work and keep okay and notice what adam didn't say after he's been given all of this after he's been placed in the household notice he didn't say well what if i don't want to work and keep what if i don't want to do this god you didn't ask me if i wanted to work and keep what if i don't want to get married i like being alone i like time to myself that's not what Adam said. He, he didn't uh, start to question what God had given to him. He didn't say, well, what if I want to invent, uh, say, uh, something down the road that's called a smartphone and maybe nab after a forbidden fruit that has a bite out of it and veg out on that said smartphone all the time and do nothing but look at myself. Right. Self reflect, live a life to myself. That's not what Adam said. That's not the picture that Adam had for good. Notice Eve didn't say, well, I don't really want to have children, God. That seems like a lot of work. Um, That's not really where I want to go in my future. That's not the future that I see. Um, No, that's not the vision that Adam and Eve have right after they are given this gift of the garden. No, on the contrary, they are overwhelmed by the beauty of the gift of the household and begin to wax poetic about it. I don't know if you noticed in, in your Bibles, but my Bible, it, it separates this out and puts it in quotes. It's kind of a, a poetic part of your Bible. This is what they, they, they are doing. When, when they are getting this gift of the household, this, the, this quote that he says, it's beautiful. It's a poetic statement. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Because she was taken out of man, she, she'll be called woman. Adam is overcome with the beauty and the goodness of the household. They caught the vision. right? They understood what God was doing when God placed them in this context. So they they realized that creation isn't just for me. It's for us. It's for everyone, and it's beautiful. The household isn't just for me. It's for everyone. Society, moving forward, subduing the earth, filling the earth. It's not just for me. It's for all. And all to the glory of God. They're writing poetry in the garden while they're working and keeping. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So while we start to, to speak of the lie of individualism, I don't want to completely eradicate the reality of the individual either. Okay? This this is dangerous too. So it's not the individual uh, the individual doesn't exist. It's just not what the world is telling you right now. It's not. It's important that we we grow into maturity. For instance, and, and we realize that we're not always who our authorities tell us we are. Right? As you grow into an adult, you realize things that your parents have told you that you are that you are not actually. So there's an element there that I want us to realize, too, that it's good to be an individual and to think for yourself. You should form your own beliefs uh, as long as they are in line with what God says. You should uh, understand who you are and discover who you are, not create who you are. See, there's a difference there. So this is a good thing that we start to think for ourselves. So the, the idea of the individual isn't an inherent problem. It's just the problem of our age right it's something that we have idolized and that's why it has become a problem individualism for instance isn't any more of a problem than communism right individualism and communism are just two extreme sides of a disordered understanding of god's world individualism overemphasizes the individual communism on the other side it underemphasizes the individual and says you are nothing you are only your culture okay we have to have the balance. The sweet spot is being in the middle, understanding that both of those have some truth to it, but it's not what God's truth has said. Okay, So that's what we're trying to do as we go to Genesis and understand what the household is. So uh, we, when we start to speak of something like sonship and daughterhood or, or any of the household roles as competing truths of the household against the lie of individualism, we're not just saying that this is a way of speaking about relationships. It's not that I'm just saying, well, Christians talk about this differently. No, it's that they are differently. We are uh, – we're, we're, we're putting more to the words than uh, what we're just saying. Okay, There's, there's an underline – remember the iceberg analogy? When we say something, there's actually a lot going on here. So what I'm saying is that uh, the words son and daughter, for instance, they're not empty. Okay, They're not empty. They point, point to that invisible reality that we've been talking about. The covenantal reality, uh, the covenantal reality that recognizes that sonship doesn't just speak to the truth that a son uh, exists as a male descended from a mother and a father. It does say that, but it doesn't only say that. So sonship is a covenantal standing that has inescapable connected obligations and responsibilities. Okay, it means that you are placed under the headship of your parents, who are also obligated to obey and submit the household rules. They can't do whatever they want, right? And compliance isn't just an individual choice. Okay? It's not an individual individual choice. It's God's law. Children must obey their parents, and the Lord for this is right. If you don't, it's sin. Okay? That's what Ephesians 6 tells us. Honor thy father and thy mother. That's not an option. We don't get to create our own laws and be consulted about the the context that we're placed in. They are God's law and God's order. Okay? It's it's not something you can argue with. But as every parent knows, this covenantal reality isn't to stifle the individuality of the child. Okay? That's not why the child is put in that context. It's actually to mature the individuality of the child. Being a head and authority over a child isn't a free pass to boss them around. Right? That, that, parents should realize that. If you haven't realized that as parents, it's not a free pass to do whatever you want with your kids. Parents are under headships themselves. right? You're under the headship of Jesus, and you must comply also. You have to do and live in God's household the way that he told you to. So, as we move towards the weeds of how the structures of the household function, the, the, the order of the household, we must realize headship and authority isn't primarily about control. It's about stewardship, maturity, and protection of the gift that we have been given. And I want to say that again because it's very, very important that you understand what I'm saying as we start to talk about the household order. Headship and authority isn't primarily about control. It's about stewardship, maturity, and protection of the gift that we have been given. Okay? Children, for instance. We've been gifted uh, by God to have children, to raise them, to nurture them, protect them, provide for them, teach them, so on. Right? But they're not ours forever. Right? They're a gift given to us, and they are not ours forever. They will one day hopefully leave us and establish their own families and their own households. Okay, look at, look at verse 24 with me. Look at verse 24. It says this. Right after marriage has happened, where woman and man have come together, it says, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think, Of Adam in his mind thinking, what's a mother? (laughs) Right? So he's just been created of the dust. And God made a woman from his side. He might understand what fatherhood is because he's walked with God in the cool of the day. But Adam doesn't have a mother. But even at the very beginning, before a mother even exists, God is putting that into the place and to the the nature of the household. Or when you see this man and the woman coming together, he's showing that you need to leave something and create something new. Okay? The two shall become one flesh. Here we have, uh, uh, we might say one body. Right? Some, some of the translations actually uh, say this. And when it talks about marriage, it talks about being one body. This is the way that uh, Jesus talks about the church, right? The, or Paul talks about the church being the body of Christ. So what you have is a new covenantal entity, a household. So when a man and a wife come together and marry and leave, they have created a new household there, Okay, something new has been created. So our job is to make sure our children are on track to be better households than when they depart from us, right? So, so when they depart from us, we want them to be better households than the household that they are leaving. In other words, our job is not to make them like us. Our job is to make them better than us. Okay, our job is not to create them in our image. Uh, our create our job is to actually to create them shaped after the image of Christ, that they might be conformed to his image, okay? So we don't want uh, our children to look like Adam and Eve, for instance. We want our children to look like Jesus, okay? All all the uh, relationships in the household do this, too. Marriage, for instance. uh, We're not supposed to look like Adam and Eve in our marriage relationship. We're supposed to look like what? Christ in the church, okay? When we think about fatherhood, we don't want to look like the patriarchs of old, Like Abraham, we want to look like our father in heaven. All the the roles of the household reflect back on the image of Christ. So that's our goal in Christian households, is not to make them look uh, exactly like us, but to mature them, to make them better than us, and recognize that they need to move forward into maturity. That's our job as leaders, as heads and authorities over them. Okay. But this is where the rub is as it relates to our individuality, when, when we're the children, when we're the ones under the headship and the authority. Okay? We might admit that being pre-engendered humans is a good thing. I like being a man. I think that most of you like being what you are. You like being a woman. You like being a man. This is, this is something that we are okay with. We see that as good. We can see it in Genesis and say, yeah, that's a good thing. We've come to terms, maybe, with the fact that we can't change our context in which we're born into. right? We're like, well, I mean, I had to be born into some household. This is fine enough, right? We've come to terms with this. We don't want to push up against that. But for most of us, I'd say actually all of us, we don't like the rules, though. That's where we get a little stifled. I'm like, yeah, but I don't like that part of it. Okay? That, that's where we have the big rub, and especially where you see in more traditional settings like our church. like We have no problem, I don't think, around here with understanding what a man and a woman is. Uh, we have to say these things now because not everyone does, but, but this is where it starts to get really hard for us is we don't like the rules. We don't like for someone to tell us what to do. No one likes this. Okay, If someone says, don't eat from that fruit, what we want more in that moment than anything is to, to have a taste of it. I just wonder what it tastes like, though. I don't want to eat the whole thing. I just want to know what it tastes like. You know, that's where we go as humans. That's our, our fallen nature in us speaking out. And what this really means practically is that we don't like authority unless we are the authority. Okay? And we don't like submission unless we are writing the terms to our submission to where it's already doing what we want to do. Okay? In short... We like control. That's what we like. We like control. We might uh, say we don't like control. I know someone's saying in this room, I hate control. Right? Well, no, you don't hate control. You actually love control. You just don't like when others have it. Right? <laughs> you love control when you're saying, I hate to be controlled. Okay? That's, what that's saying is that you want to control everything and you don't want any kind of control over you. Okay? But that isn't what submission and authority is about. Okay, that's what I want you to hear from me this morning. It's about stewardship, maturity, and protection. Okay, Even in a pre-fallen state, you can see the dangerous curiosity of Adam and Eve as they bump up against this crafty lie of individualism. That lie that says you are whatever you want to be. There's no one really in charge of you. Okay, Did God actually say? That's what the serpent says to Adam. Did God actually say? Now this was... Satan tempting them to partake of the the self constructed reality, also known as a lie. Right? Maybe you can just believe that God said it a different way, and then it'll work out. No, that's not the way it works. And Eve, at first, she even puts her foot down. She says, "God did actually, or did not actually say that. God said this." So Eve kind of re uh, re. Uh, Re-gives the the command back to or back to the the serpent to say no he didn't say this and then Satan buckles down and says you will not surely die right he just blatantly contradicts God's word you won't surely die and and I want you to realize how crafty this serpent was when he said this let me ask you a question did Adam and Eve die the day that they ate of the fruit as God said in Genesis 17. Or Genesis 2:17. Uh, That's what he said. The day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. Okay. Did Adam and Eve die that day? Yes. No. Yes. Kinda. Okay. Right. It's kind of complicated, isn't it? Yes. Spiritually, they did die. There was a spiritual death that happened that day. No. Physically, they didn't die that day. They lived for a while afterwards, but they did die later on. Okay. So yes. Yes. No. Yes. Okay. Now, now let's apply this principle to our culture. Okay. Will our culture die the day that we disobeyed God's order in the household? Okay? Yes, no, yes. Okay? Yes. Spiritually, the day that we stop following God's order, there will be a spiritual death, and that will eliminate a context of thriving. We can't keep going and living in God's blessing if we stop following the order. So, the day that we stop that is the day that we stop thriving as a culture. Physically, no. It won't collapse immediately. But as I argued last week, over time, yes. Yes, it will. If you do not repair the foundation and rebuild the broken parts, eventually it will keep eroding, eventually it will keep cracking, and it will break down. This church is the pattern. This is how it works in the world. You can't escape it. This is how all things function. Move from it, and we know how it is. Right? the Bible has given us a clear picture of what we should do, even what happens when we don't do it, okay? It's not just that we have a pre-fall picture of Adam and Eve and they never sinned, we just have to wonder, well, what happened if they didn't? No, we have a picture of what happens when they didn't because they didn't and we are now living in that reality, okay? So the first place that we have to start when we come to repairing the cracked and eroded foundation of the household in our society is that authority structures are essential in order to hold each household together. You have to have it. If you want order, you need responsibility. And if you want responsibility, you have to put someone in charge of that responsibility. Okay. We might think of authority structures as the mortar that binds each brick of the foundation together. We've been talking about foundations a lot. And and if you want to think about it, authority is what actually holds each of these households. If each household is a brick, authority is what the invisible stuff is that makes it all form together. And, And it begins on a level of individual humility. Humility has to come first. Let me explain what I mean by this a little bit. The humility that every single person has to have, not just every household, but every individual person, is that they are being asked to do something for everyone's sake. It's not just for you. It's for us, for the sake of the household, for the sake of the overall good. For example, it takes humility to be a faithful manager, and it also takes humility to be a faithful employee. Okay? Okay? everyone knows uh, uh, this when you start to actually think about it we all know how dry an authority figure can be without humility it's disgusting someone who is just always giving out commands with zero humility to them all they want to do is tell other people how to do it they don't want to have any grace any humility to it but likewise we all know how dry an insubordinate person can be who refuses to be told what to do i'm not going to do that i don't do that right both are disgusting Both are ugly pictures of what their role should be, okay? Now, if you want to think about it this way, humility is the water that mixes with the dry mortar of submission and authority relationships to create a strong foundation. You have to have both. When you have humility on both ends, it creates a context for incredibly strong relationships. It works, and it works good, okay? When you have people functioning both on the right end of that. When everyone has humility. Okay? But add too much water to the mix where humility is no longer real humility. It's kind of this pseudo-humility where you're acting in fear and passivity of you're scared of what might happen uh, because you're telling this person what to do or uh, scared of what that person might do to you. And then you find your mortar isn't so strong. Right? It's watered down. It isn't a, a real bond. So watered down authority and submission is practically useless just like dry submission and authority is. A bag of mortar doesn't do any good without the water. Okay, You can have it there. You can dump it all you want on bricks. But unless you have the humility coming with it to mix with that, it's not going to work. Okay? It takes both to make the submission and authority uh, work right. Okay, If you haven't noticed... We're dragging our feet a bit as we come to the subject of authority and submission. It's been very slow. I've alluded to it, but we still haven't gotten into into the thick of it yet. And I'm going slow uh, because as soon as you walk out these doors, you're going to enter a context that will be vehemently fighting against this. Everything that I'm saying or about to say, the people inside and out the church are going to say, no, 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 no. You can't have that. Right? That, that, that's what you're going uh, to bump up against. So I wanna go into this slowly uh, because I wanna speak gently and graciously and clearly about these delicate matters because they are delicate. When we start to talk about the order of the household, who is an authority, who needs to submit, that kind of thing, is it's a delicate matter. I wanna be honest about that. Now, as I look at our culture, I, I often do cultural analysis uh, by simply just getting on Facebook. Facebook, Instagram, that kind of thing You can get a pretty good picture of where our culture is at By just simply looking on there And these are the kind of things that I see As I look on Facebook and Instagram You'll have people saying things like this If your pastor is preaching on authority Whether it be about the family, the church, or the government Run Get out Go What they'll say is This is a red flag because it means your pastor or elders Are just trying to control your life They are weak men groping for more power That's the kind of things that I read. That's the kind of things that people are saying. Now, church, this might be true about some churches. Actually, I don't doubt that it is at all true about some churches. There are really people out there. I don't don't want to act like there aren't abuse situations even going on where narcissistic pastors are trying to get a better grip of the people to control them uh, by using the Bible. They have all that dry mortar behind them, and they're heaping it up, but they have zero humility. Zero. Zero. Okay, and that's why it's not working. That's why these people are telling them to run. Because in those situations, you know what? Probably should run. Okay? So, so I just want to be clear about this and come at the right, with the right angle and the, the right heart and, and my own position and, and everything. I just, I'm going slow for that reason. I, I want to be upfront about uh, this issue in case anyone would believe that that's why I've decided to preach on the household and how the household should function from a biblical perspective. I'm not trying to push anything on you. What I'm trying to do is faithfully, humbly preach God's word in a culture that is crumpling. That's what I'm trying to do right now is give you a better alternative than what the world is trying to give you. The people who are telling you to run from the red flags of authority don't see where they're running from when they're running out of the God-ordained authority that they were under. They're running into a very dark world. They're running into a very scary place when they're rebelling against the order that God has put in creation. A world that will uh, use them for what they can get out of them. They will. The world will abuse you. They will hurt you. It's a scary place that people are running to today. They don't realize it because they've been lied to. The lie is that you can do and protect yourself and you need no kind of uh, back behind you. You are an individual. You can do whatever you want in the world. Run out there and nothing bad can happen. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Terrifying what the world is telling us right now. When you believe the lie that authority is fundamentally suppressive and oppressive to your individuality, you set yourself up for all kinds of attacks. You really do. Like a child being told by his friend that his parents are just trying to control him by commanding him not to leave the boundaries of the yard, the household. Many people today are running outside the boundaries and being snatched up by all kinds of evil that enslaves them and traffics them for their own agendas. We've been talking about this, right? This, this is the kind of thing that happens. We have to be careful what we're telling people when we're telling people to watch out for authority. Are we telling them to watch out for authority? Or are we telling them to watch out for bad authority? Okay, what are we saying when we're talking about the household? That's why I want to speak very gently and slowly about this. And remember that where all this started, we're going to Genesis because we're getting a, a really good clear picture of before it's all distorted by sin, Remember where this all started in Genesis. It wasn't God who was dis- uh, sowing dissension about who is in authority, was it? No. no. Actually, at the very beginning, Satan, the serpent, is the one that is questioning the authority. It was Satan who is ruling and reigning in this realm of pushing back against the authority, the true authority, the right authority. And if we participate in despising God ordained authority structures, Paul says this in Romans 13 that we are incurring judgment upon ourselves. Okay? We are inviting our own destruction. We are setting ourselves up for failure when we despise authority. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us and what he tells the church in Romans 13. The world is trying to erode the family by whispering the lie of the serpent in your ear that you are your own God. You can do whatever you want. That's the lie of individualism. They want to sow rebellion to the traditional family unit in order to rob the power that it has. That's what they're actually after. This is a power struggle, if you haven't noticed. Okay? And when families function healthily, just know, church, that it's a threat to injustice. When families function rightly and healthily, it's a threat to poverty, to social weakness. Right? This is a powerful thing, the household. And the world knows this, okay? The world knows this. So when the families are healthy, they hold the cards to society. They do. And the world knows this. Satan knows this. He's been around for a long time. He knows what he's doing. He knows where to hit people in the right places to make the right things crumble. Okay, So while the world will tell you I'm oppressing you, I'm tearing down societal progress that we've made, we've been working up on everything that these uh, conservatives are saying uh, by by teaching authority and submission roles. I want you to see that what I'm actually trying to do is empower you. I'm not trying to control you. I'm trying to empower you to be able to build up the society that God has intended in the way that he has intended it to function. I'm actually trying to give the power over to you, not try to take anything from you. I want every household of our church, including my own, to be dangerously powerful to the building up of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's that's what I want for me and my household. That's what I want for you and your household. So just hear me as we start to move forward. I know it can be scary talking about roles in the household, submission and authority. My heart for you is for you to have healthy households and for us to be potent, powerful in our communities, to be able to speak to the injustices that are happening to people. The really sad situations that people find themselves in where they've been lied to. They're confused about their identity. They're confused about their place in the world. I want us to know who we are our place in the world and how to speak to that to other people too, to be able to give them biblical answers to the way that God has created the world to be. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.